And I had this sense that I should practice the phrase, give me the gun, Laszlo. <laughs> Laszlo, give me the gun. Laszlo, give me the gun. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is part of my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way. I chat with the iconic adventure journalist Tim Cahill, who co-founded Outside Magazine in 1977 and was one of my earliest travel writing heroes back when I was a teenager in the 1980s. I've always liked Tim's funny, practical, unpretentious approach to travel, and I quote him in five different sections of my new book. Specifically, I quote an essay entitled Professor Cahill's Travel 101, which I found in his book Hold the Enlightenment nearly two decades ago. In this essay, Tim suggests travelers build their journey around a specific quest and avoid psychotic travel companions. He discourages travelers from becoming obsessed with saving money, particularly in developing countries that can use the money travelers bring in. And he gently argues for the merits of boredom, the importance of rest, and the futility of complaining about your travels when everyone else is experiencing the same thing as you are. Tim is in his mid-late 70s now and claims he's retired from adventure travel. I always enjoy talking to him in part because Tim's writing meant so much to me when I was becoming a writer myself. I begin by reading the premise of his Travel 101 essay. Let's listen in. I'm going to read Professor Cahill's Travel 101, which is 20 years old by now. It's well, is it, it? Do you remember when? When did you write it? Let's let's just call it 25 years. Okay. Well, what I love about these rules is that they're just so relevant, which is why I'm going to walk through them today, and we'll just sort of talk about how they still apply, or if they don't, how they might not apply. But in your article, you wrote, travel advice on the whole is a fairly straightforward affair. It's all pretty obvious. Make sure you have a current passport and a visa if necessary. Pack half the clothes you think you'll need and take twice the money. Get the proper shots and carry the appropriate medications. But here's a list of somewhat less evident rules. A few are entirely idiosyncratic, such as rule one, avoid psychotic travel companions. Rule one, corollary one. The most carefully chosen travel companions become the most psychotic. And rule one corollary two is psychosis is contagious. Tim, Tim, is there a specific story or set of stories connected to rule number one? Yeah, I was thinking of a, of a fellow who um, fancied himself an explorer. He had been a computer programmer and a Marine, and he kind of combined the uh, least admirable aspects of those two <laughs> yeah. uh, those those two occupations into one remarkable personality um, so it was uh, um, he tended to uh, bark out orders um, some of which I felt were superfluous and uh, not needed and uh, this led to um, arguments uh, over the uh, over the campfire and uh, um, probably one of the while it was a successful expedition in my opinion it was uh, also uh, one of the least uh, fun ones to be on because we were always clashing horns and uh, uh, I had this I had this sense that uh, let's say the guy's name was Laszlo. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, you know, just Laszlo. Um, and I had the sense that I should practice the phrase, give me the gun, Laszlo. <laughs> Laszlo, give me the gun. Laszlo, give me the gun. I did Laszlo... The Laszlo in question was never that, uh, uh, never that dangerous. But uh, I felt I felt like I should practice those phrases. I've I've been around travel companions, so I feel like it might come to that. You mentioned that psychosis is contagious. Do you have a, a moment of personal cont- uh, psychosis that you now uh, celebrate or regret? Yeah, probably. Um, yep, yeah, I can't. I can't think of one that I really want to tell. Okay. 
I think sometimes for me, my, my, the psychosis is, it's a little bit low stakes. Like I'm a, usually a patient person, but by hour 18 on that bus across the Himalayas in India, um, I just become very irritable and maybe not as polite as I would usually be. It's not full-blown psychosis, but it, it's certainly a, a part of my personality that I try not to reveal too often. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it's not going to get you anywhere either. That's the, you know, I mean, oh yeah, it'll get you, you know, you'll stay on the bus, but uh, uh, you're, you're not going to get anything for your story. Uh, an irritable person is not somebody that uh, uh, other patrons would like to talk to. Uh, and uh, so you're just going to sit in that bus seat and stew and, uh, uh not get anything for uh, your story, the whole idea, or, or uh, let let us be um, uh, grandiose. Uh, your soul, you're, right, right, irritable. You're not gonna, you're not gonna feed your uh, soul here on uh, irritability. Well, it feels like travel almost turns you into a stoic. Um, and, you know, the Stoic principle is that you can't control your circumstances, but you can control how you react to your circumstances. And it's almost like travel, especially those 18-hour bus ride moments, is like boot camp in training yourself to refine your Stoical way to react to things. I believe that's so. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be unpleasant, that 18-hour bus ride. Um, I am not... Uh, <clears throat> when I was a much, much, much younger traveler, I had the idea that uh, the 18-hour bus ride was um, uh, it. One did that uh, for that was a virtue. The the being able to tolerate the distances and the times and the uncomfortableness right. of the whole thing. Uh, was a virtue. As I got older, I could say, you know, if there's an easier way to get around here, I'll do it. Uh, Tim, I'm with you 100%. Um, for years, I was the, the, the biggest dirtbag on the on the chicken bus. But then a few years ago, I went to Africa and I rented a four-wheel drive uh, in South Africa and drove it to Mozambique. And it was so, I mean, I missed some of those chicken bus interactions, but it just made life so much easier and actually gave me more options of where to go when I was in Mozambique. And sort of being a non-dirtbag was sort of nice in that situation. Yep. I'm going to go on to number two, which is have a quest. You write, the quest is the most significant and consequential of all travel plans. So have a quest, some bit of business that will shove you into the cultural maelstrom. Perhaps you're interested in trains or motorcycle clubs or ecological issues. Find locals who share your passion. You'll make friends. How did you come about the idea of a, of a quest? Well, I was doing a lot of traveling uh, for different magazines, uh, uh, you know, on assignment. And uh, you always had a quest. It's like um, uh, nobody... Uh, Nobody would pay you uh, to say, um, oh, I'm going to go to Peru. Do you want a story? Uh, right. Nobody, nobody, nobody was going to pay. You You uh, would say, I'm going to go to Peru, and I believe it's possible for me to find some ancient and little-known uh, pre-Inca uh, buildings and uh, installations, and I have a pretty darn good idea of where they're going to be. Uh, and that's a story that somebody might want to uh, pay you for. And then you have to start going up into those places and using your uh, the various uh, uh, books that you have, uh, the research that you've done. Your research might include uh, the Royal Commentaries of the Incas by Garcilaso de la Vega, who was the son of a Spanish conquistador and a Peruvian princess uh, who went around just after the Spanish conquest in Peru, talking to court historians and writing down their histories. And uh, from there you can find, oh, the when Pizarro 
came in, they were uh, the Incas were looking to conquer this particular area. Uh, let's go try uh, looking in that area and seeing what uh, was there. And by golly, there was quite a bit there. And that was a quest. Uh, quests can be much, much simpler. Uh, I recall talking about this very um, this very subject uh, at uh, the uh, Book Passage uh, Travel Writers Conference, which you've attended, I know. Yeah, great event. It is a great event, and I was telling people, uh, you know, having a quest is the essential part of travel. And uh, and one thing I mentioned, I said, well, maybe you're interested in narrow-gauge railroads. Uh, and you could go... And somebody, I'll leave the name out, but uh, a well-known travel writer uh, said, narrow gauge railroads, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a boring quest, don't you think? Well, no. Um, uh, there's a book called The Old Patagonian Express. Uh, it was a best hmm. by Paul Theroux, and he was driven to that because... He was interested in the old narrow-gauge railroads. So even these things that sound, you know, um, you might have a hobby at home. Um, or you may be uh, a bird watcher. Uh, just the, the quest, the deal about the quest is you have to look for something. You have to try to figure out how to navigate in a different culture to find the very people that you want to know. And the danger in travel too often is to fall into the easy tourist hotel, tourist thing, hmm. uh, tourist guide. Um, that's very easily done. Uh, or there's a, a separate category of persons who consider themselves world travelers who eschew tourist hotels and the like but end up all going to the same places uh, anyway that aren't tourist hotels. So you're following that particular group. Uh, uh, the quest sends you on your own. In your quest, things are likely to go wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's... The, and, and that helps make a story. Um, as listeners probably know... Um, you may have been on a recent travel uh, and it was wonderful. You were on board ship and, uh, and you were delivered the proper drinks and, uh, and, and it was nice and sunny and uh, you could take a dip in the pool when you wanted to. But that doesn't make a very good story. What, make, what makes the story is somebody got something got in your way, an obstacle that you have to overcome. And, uh, and having a quest will uh, thrust obstacles uh, into your path. And uh, as your listeners know, when they start telling stories about their, uh, their travels, what do they end up talking about? They don't end up talking about how wonderful that meal was and how great it was lying on the beach. No, they talk about, oh, the guy at the rental car uh, a kiosk who accused them of stealing the car and the, uh, the, the interactions with the police and the proving in the hour and a half. Uh, a little bit of misery in your trip, but it's what you end up talking about. Yeah, in, in a way it feels like... Obviously, writers, it helps if you're a travel writer and you have a quest to form your story around. But even if even if my listeners aren't travel writers, just I, it feels like part of the point of the quest is what you find by accident when you're trying to find the, the object of your quest. All those little steps that happen along the way, good and bad, are the gift of the quest as much as realizing the quest. I'm going to move on to, to rule number five. I, I think you had 20 points, but I'm, I'm picking about half of them uh, in the interest of time. Rule number five, uh, it sort of touches on something we talked about before, but it's boredom greases the cogs in the machinery of marvels. You will be bored. 
Oh, God, will you be bored. The three days waiting for an Indonesian bureaucrat to issue a travel permit. The rock slide that causes a 23-hour traffic jam in Costa Rica. The five-day wait for the Congo River passenger barge. Boring. Bring along a book. This is your chance to finally read War and Peace. I think when people have a vision of uh, a a trip and a great trip, and they might uh, uh, plan it uh, meticulously uh, day by day, but if you're on your quest, you're on your... Thing you you will run into obstacles, and if you envisioned your trip as a series of brilliant highlights, one after the other after the other, um, you're going to be disappointed. Um, it, there are uh, times when uh, things are just boring. Um, there. You're, you're stuck someplace and you can't move and you don't particularly like the place. Um, I think we are going to uh, uh, come on to a, a corollary of the, uh, uh, of the fact that you're going to be bored. Um, and uh, that is how to use your days of boredom. So, yeah, well, let's talk about that, actually, Tim. Uh, how, when, when you're stuck on that 18-hour bus while you're on day four of waiting for a travel permit, when the road is out and you're not sure when the road is going to be built again, how do you deal with this boredom that travel has, for lack of a better word, gifted you? What do you do with the boredom? It's, it's my opinion. Um, it, through 50 years of, uh, of travel, that you don't have the epiphany uh, on the mountaintop. Uh, for instance, you climb the mountain uh, and you stand there and you say, and I looked at the white world far below, stretching as far as I could see, and I realized then that I could finally forgive my brother for, like, no, that does not happen on the top of the mountain. I guarantee you it doesn't happen. What you're thinking is, now I got to get down this son of a bitch. Huh. And, and uh, uh, what, what, where the uh, insights, epiphanies, if you will, begin to happen is usually some days after the trip in question and you are stuck somewhere. And maybe it's... Uh, um, not the most salubrious hotel room, um, uh, and there's a uh, uh, a ceiling fan and uh, motes of uh, light, uh, motes of dust are floating in the light that, that makes it into the room, and you might be lying on your back in your bed, and you might be thinking, you know, when I was on that mountain the thoughts of my brother did come into my head. And yeah, there. so the, the epiphany comes later. And uh, my suggestion is always, uh, um, you know, look for it on a boring day. Yeah, well, I think you, you also talk about the importance of rest days. And I think I think even when I read your your professor Cahill's 101 for the first time, I didn't properly appreciate that. I think sometimes early in your travel career, you just want to go, 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 because you feel like you have to cram everything in. But in retrospect, kind of like what you've been talking about, some of my favorite days in retrospect have been those rest days when I'm in the Uintah Mountains and I'm just sitting in the sun reading a book and making sense of what happened to it before, that I'm on the Namibian coast without a lot to do, but time to think about what has come before it. Uh, yeah, so were you, did you always have instincts to balance hard travel with rest or, is, or are the rest days something you sort of realized after a while that you had to create for yourself? I realized after a while, but it it came very very quickly, um, hmm. uh, and uh, you know some days I would just uh, with expeditionary friends uh, I would just call for a rest day, and uh, and my friends would look at me like, "Thank God someone said it." Huh? Huh? 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like the, the group, like, maybe everybody's thinking we need a rest, you know, that we're going too hard. But being the person, being the guy who suggests a rest is, is seen as a, as a good thing. Um, so I, I guess what, what is the argument for the rest day? Like if you, if you have 18 days planned in the Himalayas, how do you tell people before the trip that you need to plan two to three of those doing nothing? I don't know that I can uh, convince anybody uh, uh, ahead of the trip. Mm. During the trip, you you might be able to. Yeah, yeah. In real time, they realize the importance of those rest days. the the next The next rule I'm going to read is is one of my all time favorites. Or at least the corollary um, is something that when I first read it, I sort of was nodding along. It's rule number six: stop whining. If you're cold and wet. It's a good bet that everybody else in your party is too. Why should they listen to you talk about what they already know? Corollary number one is, this can't be stressed strongly enough. No one wants to hear about your last bowel movement. <laughs> that, and believe me, that is a topic of conversation quite often. Yeah, well, I think um, like travel has a way of pushing you back into the most basic aspects of human existence. You're in a place where you don't speak the language and you're speaking a very simple, poorly translated version of the language that recalls childhood. Um, I guess childhood is also a time in life when bowel movements are interesting, but then bowel movements become so unusual on travel that that it becomes a point of, uh, of obsession for some people. What's, I mean, this sounds obvious, but why, I mean, is there a is there a bad experience or a series of bad experiences where you were an hour six of people comparing bowel movements, <laughs> or why why did this come up? <laughs> it, it 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 came up because it's something that happens quite often on a uh, um, on an expedition that you are with uh, um, other people, and uh, certain people are uh, <laughs> let's say narcissistically concerned about. Uh, uh, the waste product that they have left behind. Uh, often these uh, conversations uh, try to take place during the uh, uh, during uh, during dinner, uh, <laughs> eating something, and uh, your, uh, your your weight move, uh, waste movement guru is talking about what this could possibly, uh, what effect this might have um, on their waste. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, please, don't, no, don't, no more. more. We we probably all on on any kind of expedition are, uh, do not experience great regularity. Uh, (laughs) Right. and it is simply, um, uh, it's, it's the same as the first part of the first rule there. Uh, if you're cold and wet, everyone is too. Look, if your ball movements are not uh, particularly predictable and exactly the way they are at home, guess what? Everyone else is going through the same thing. We don't want to hear about that. We really don't want to hear about it. I wonder if this goes back to the early days that everybody has during toilet training, where you're being trained to use a toilet and you show off to your parents what you did, like you had this accomplishment, and suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, you're in your your twenties or forties or seventies, and all of a sudden you feel proud of your bowel movement. Do you do you think there might be uh, some 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 truth in that? Yeah, I I, I think that could possibly be it. Um, uh, travel has the ability to. Uh, um, in, in, for both good and bad, reduce you to infancy. Right. Uh, uh, the the infancy of uh, seeing something, you know, seeing a child's a baby's face uh, when they uh, the the young child that looks up and sees a mobile, you know, uh, floating above their head when they uh, uh, reach for it, and that 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 look of sheer amazement on their face and travel can do that to us it can make us look at something and just feel completely amazed and it can also um throw you into a situation in which you're obsessed about your ball movements (laughs) 
<laughs> well, well stated, Tim. Well stated. Um, I'm going to move on to another uh, another rule. It's rule number eight, which reads, and actually, I'm going to split this into two parts because it's, there's a lot going on here. But rule eight is: it ain't about money. Too often, money and the process of saving money becomes the entire point of traveling. If the nature of your quest is financial, stay home and get into arbitrage. Um, th- this reminds me of a lot of the one downsmanship I experienced in my backpacker days where everybody is trying to spend the, less, the least money possible in this foreign country. So why did this make it into the list of rules? Well, because some people, um, I actually got a couple of letters um, in my, uh, uh, when I was working at Outside Magazine and traveling about, and they were challenges. Um, Tim, let us go to Peru or to uh, uh, Southeast Asia or wherever the person wanted to go. And uh, we'll each be given $100, and the idea is to see how long we can stay alive. Uh, and, and that is precisely the kind of challenge that uh, I find um, uh, really, 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 really objectionable. Um, uh, yeah, you don't when you're when you're traveling, you don't want to uh, uh, be um, you know taken for a rube and uh, lose money, but. You also, um, I think I say somewhere in there, I, I find it objectionable to have a, you know, 25-year-old uh, super fit backpacker arguing for an hour and a half with some poor South American woman who is going to wash his clothes. And will it be 15 cents or 10 cents? And this person wants to argue with that woman for an hour and a half to get a five cent discount, and uh, I find that objectionable. Yeah, that actually ties into the corollaries, which I'll read now. It says, "Don't listen to fellow travelers who espouse this cheap philosophy or the philosophy of don't spoil the natives. Don't spoil the natives is often the way it is put. Screw those people. Spend what you need in order to accomplish your quest." And the second corollary is thinking of your host as quote natives who can be quote spoiled dehumanizes people and creates the kind of abyss that is impossible to bridge with friendship. And so let's dig into this a little bit, because I think sometimes, sometimes you know, young backpackers are great travelers, except for this one downsmanship of money, which is against the very point of cross-cultural exchange and learning about other people and actually feeding into the economies we're traveling through. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, uh, do you know Chris Rainier, the photographer, Chris? Friend of mine. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. The name sounds familiar. I've probably seen his work. I'm, I'm certain you've seen his work. Uh, geographic photographer. Um, Chris was in China during the Tiananmen Square uh, uh, problem, and uh, uh, they were. Uh, the Chinese government was going around telling people with a bullhorn in English to uh, leave the country leave the country. And uh, uh, Chris was trying to take pictures and uh, didn't leave the country until they came around with buses uh, adorned with bed sheets saying foreign journalists will be shot on site. And uh, Chris thought, well, it's time for me to leave now. <laughs> and, and I said, what did you do? He said, I got a cab. Uh, uh, the cab driver said, uh, I said, no, yes, the the cab driver told me it would be a $100 cab ride. That was a lot of money back then. Uh, And uh, in telling the story to other people, um, they said, did Chris pay all that money? Didn't he argue with him and get him down a little bit? Uh, No, he did not. He paid $100 (laughs) because he might be shot on sight. (laughs) uh so uh yeah yeah there there were i guess i guess there were people who there are people who in chris's situation would have tried to argue uh, uh would have tried to bargain with that particular cab driver there's times that you don't want to bargain you don't need to bargain you shouldn't bargain 
Yeah, well, maybe there were some people who bargained and we never heard from them again. You know, the, the, those journalists never reported. <laughs> Very likely. Yeah, no, yeah, it seems like the, there is, there's this idea that traveling to uh, less industrialized countries is a way to save money as a traveler, and that's very much true. But obsessing about the lowest possible price does not necessarily a good trip make. So, yeah. And I remember, you know, early on in my career, um, this doesn't happen today, but there, there used to be airline magazines. Mm-hmm. I could uh, hustle up a job for an airline magazine at one of their destinations. Um, so I got a, a free air, air flight there in return for writing about uh, of Bali or Indonesia, wherever. And uh, once I landed, uh, I... I you know, I was I was just trying to make my living at that time. I was not uh, getting paid a lot of money, but once I landed and was out of the city proper, um, I didn't pay very much money at all. I mean, I could uh, travel and get uh, and get great stories um, and follow my heart in terms of yes, I'll pay you what it's worth. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not paying much. So the the whole idea of paying half of much, you know, paying half of not a lot is, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be arguing about money with people. It doesn't doesn't help you make friends. You know, if, if they, they, if, when it's expected that you bargain at a marketplace, yes, of course you do. But. When you're uh, uh, when you've got uh, often, I would try to find a local fixer or friend who could uh, uh, help me translate and uh, show me what's happening and how to get there properly. That person uh, uh, that person was paid as well as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole idea behind that is that uh, uh, I wanted to be his personal money machine hmm. so that when we're talking to somebody else and they're trying to screw me on a deal, he will step in hmm. uh, because he doesn't want me wasting my money on something that could, well, he, I w- I'm paying him. So... Uh, yeah, it feels like there's an aspect to which this is part of ethical travel. You know, traveling is paying into a, a local economies, you know, that we're from wealthy nations and we're buying things and uh, we're helping them out, not just by being friends, but by buying things in their community. So that feels like it makes sense. Yeah. Actually, rule number nine ties in this a little bit. It says, don't worry too much about gear. Do people live where you're going? Have they lived there for centuries, for a millennium? Maybe they know something about survival in the place where they live. Why spend three days trying to find a machete in Denver when you can buy a better one for a quarter of the price in Honduras? Uh, you also talk about the magical qualities of, of duct tape in a place like the Congo. So uh, how, how about the, the gear situation? Um, the gear has changed a lot uh, for me, in the, uh, and it has to do with the fact that I'm getting older, I suppose. Um, uh, when I was young, uh, gear was, uh, we call it uh, bulletproof, bombproof. Um, uh, it could survive, uh, you know, uh, a bomb blast. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, there were um, lots of uh, safety redundancies and the like. Um, as I got a little bit older, um, I started using lighter and lighter gear hmm. um, uh, to some degree uh, um, into what is called ultralight. Uh, uh, just easier for me to carry, to horse around, to uh, get to places that uh, I'm going to go to. Uh, yeah, you go on an expedition and uh, <laughs> What, what happens is you're laying out, everybody's laying out their gear, and it's kind of the uh, the ultra gear shootout. You know, well, I got this tent, and I got that tent, and uh, um, 
people are looking at my stuff and it's like it's god that's 25 years old and it's it's all patched up <laughs> yeah well i didn't need a new one <laughs> Well, I think gear is sometimes its own cult within the travel and outdoor communities that people, they really assuage their wanderlust before they even leave by buying a bunch of stuff. And there's a lot of great designed stuff. Um, so just for my listeners, how do you, how do you toe the line between buying cool travel stuff and not buying cool travel stuff because it just weights you down and, and, and creates more stuff to carry around? Uh, I don't know, Ralph. I've, I've I've done this for so many years that I kind of know what I want, mm. and, and and so I don't go into like an REI and uh, start salivating at everything. Yeah, I got that. I got that. I got this. You know, what? Well, what I basically need is uh, a pair of pants that uh, stretches, and because I do a lot of sliding down the hill on my butt. Uh, that, that won't rip easily. Uh, I need that. Um, uh, naturally, my thermorest last thermorest sprang a leak, um, and I need one of those. Probably not a thermorest. I'm tired of those springing a leak. I'll get this. I just, um, oh hell! If you were in my house, we went down to the basement. You would see. Oh. 40 to 50 years of equipment, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, neatly hung. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can choose pretty much whatever I want. Uh, you know, I've got, oh, you've got a, a three-season tent, four-season tent. I've got tents that uh, people use at Camp 4 at, uh, uh, on Everest. You know, am I going to have to take that tent or uh, the light three-season tent? Right. I would imagine working for Outside Magazine for so long has sort of given, has sort of exposed you to every wave of equipment fashion that has come through. And maybe in 100 years, that basement will be the Tim Cahill Museum where people can come in and see what it was like in the late 20th and early 21st centuries to travel. Um, <laughs> Have you ever been caught out uh, and and buying gear locally has created a problem? Um, once I was in the Indian Himalayas, uh, India was so hot that I didn't really have any warm clothes, but then I went up into the mountains and I was cold. I bought and borrowed clothes, and in retrospect, all the photos, I look like a complete dork because it's, it's too small for me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm 6'3 and maybe a little bit too tall for your average Himalayan Indian. Do you have any corollary experiences where you just – something very idiosyncratic resulted from the fact that you saved some things to buy until you showed up? I'll tell you one story. I was in the, um, uh, I was in Namibia. There's a place called the Fall River Canyon there, and it rivals the Grand Canyon, except it's a dry part of the year. Hmm. But the walls, uh, and I was there with our friend uh, Richard Banks, and we were talking, trying to figure out whether we could make a first ascent of this uh, river. Well, it's hot. It's a desert. Uh, it's pretty miserable. I got there, and uh, uh, they lost my bags, of course. Hmm. So basically what I had was... Uh, so we were five or six days in the bottom of that river canyon. Um, I had the shoes that I wore on the plane, which were... Reasonably good hiking shoes. I borrowed a swimming suit from somebody, and I had a T-shirt, and that's what I wore for five or six days. And uh, uh, after, oh Lord, two weeks in Namibia, I went back to the airport and was reunited with my suitcase. Right. What did you miss the most? What did, what, 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 what did you wish you had the most out of that suitcase? Um. Uh, a clean shirt would have been nice. Huh. Um, the what? Like I said, the, uh, the the river doesn't run full time, but there is a little bit of water down at the bottom of the river, and it's muddy, sort of urine colored, and that's what you washed your shirt in. And uh, uh, that after after a couple of weeks, that shirt was pretty gritty. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah, I'd imagine any travel clothes that looks good probably hasn't been tr- uh, truly travel tested, um, given those details. Um, rule number 11 is try the local foods. Eat what is put in front of you. They're not making fun of you. The rooster's head floating in the soup really is given to the honored guest. It is impolite not to eat it. If you're a picky eater, stay home. I've seen this uh, seldom with expeditionary people that have been on an expedition or two, but uh, people that are unfamiliar with um, travel and uh, want a cheeseburger, it's, um, look, (laughs) they don't have cheeseburgers here. What they have is uh, this yellow glop that they put on rice. That's what you're going to get. And and uh, no complaining about those kinds of uh, things. I've, you know, um, I've, I, I'm no um, uh, gourmand by any means, but I'm, I'm always interested in uh, what other people eat and how they eat it and uh, how they cook it. Uh, um, and it's uh, <laughs> and if you if you do happen to be in uh, oh say you're in uh, uh, San Juan Costa Rica and you're talking to a couple of people and they say oh <laughs> let me take you to our local American restaurant uh oh <laughs> and it's 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 a modicum kind of a you know of American food, but it's not particularly good. And you didn't come to Costa Rica to uh, eat that anyway. But unfortunately, with your friends, you're going to have to go there, and you're going to have to tell them, "Oh, that's that's pretty much like what we eat." Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, so. Uh, that and and then and then it revolves back on me and I think my myself and say, yeah, that Thai person that came through, and I took her to our local Thai restaurant. I'll bet she was feeling the same thing. Right. Yeah. No. That that's an interesting dynamic. Um, it feels like you could. There's almost a travel book in that, like going around the world eating cheeseburgers in countries where cheeseburgers are not local at all. I've actually gotten. I've, I've probably gotten sick more from uh, air quotes American food in places where it's not familiar than local food. It, it's almost a rule of thumb. Why go to India and eat a cheeseburger, right? You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, actually, you were so specific in that advice uh, about the rooster head. Um, how many rooster heads have you eaten, and do you have any tips for how to better eat a rooster head? Um, there was only one rooster head. It was. Uh... It was in Lemebamba, Peru. Um, we were in uh, uh, a very nice family's home, uh, the uh, dirt-floored hut, um, sitting at a table, um, uh, very formal. The women, uh, uh, there's nothing I can do about this, but the women aren't seated with the men. They have to stand hmm. and watch as you uh Eat. It made me uncomfortable, but I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, correct their culture. Uh, yeah. At dinner, so we eat there, and I did notice the um, rooster head in the soup, and uh, I ate around it, and I wondered. I did wonder whether it was in fact a joke, and looking around, I got the pretty good idea that yeah um that's the that's the honored thing i i put it in my mouth broke it (laughs) coughed into my hand which uh, Ah. uh, did that and uh and the dog that was skulking around the table got the rest of it always a good travel strategy when you're not quite sure if you want to eat something i guess (laughs) yeah Uh, Tim, the last one I'm going to bring up, I'm going to combine the last two. Uh, Rule 20 is there are no bad experiences, but rule 19 is mold experience into stories as a mnemonic device. Corollary 2 says all guide stories begin with line, 
no shit, there I was. And yep. Corollary, Corollary 3 says, the worse the experience, the better the story. Yep, yep. Well, that's true. I can think of, uh, uh, I was uh, in the uh, uh, Antarctic on a uh, expeditionary boat, and uh, we put out two um, rubber rafts to go into the shore and uh, start examining the shore and seeing if other people could come in. Both those boats for... uh, a myriad of reasons flipped over. So there were four people in the water uh, in uh, in Antarctica. And you know the skuas, those uh, big birds that steal eggs from the penguins. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there was there there were people. There was one guy I remember in particular, Mike. Uh, he defended skuas, and now they were circling him, and he was floating on his back with the. Uh, the, the life preserver that kind of positions you on your back and the cold water kind of kept him unable to really move and the skuas were circling him and we know the first thing they were going to go for was the eyes. Um, right. um, happily, we had some very, very experienced uh, uh marine biologists there that got another uh, boat out of the water, got these guys out. They were in there for about 20 minutes. Goodness. um, And got them out of the water. And uh, uh, they were taken to the doctor's uh, suite. And uh, we were all eating our dinner, worried about whether our friends were going to survive. And uh, we heard the doctor call for... uh, Four glasses of cognac, which to us meant, yeah, they are alive. They, they, uh, alcohol is uh, contraindicated for uh, hypothermia. Uh, so these guys are uh, just celebrating. And later on, they all came up and uh, uh, and <laughs> into the into the hall where we all were, and there was a big celebration and. Uh, and I asked my friend Mike if he still liked skuas a lot, and he said, I had some trouble with the idea of skuas at that particular moment. I oh, can imagine. That's a bad, that's a, that is a really bad experience that is a really good story. Well, I would imagine, I mean, many of your books are collections of travel stories. Do you have any any stories that... that- don't have a bad experience that are all about positive things? Or would you say that that in, in your outside career and then later in your books that collect stories, is it most always making sense of bad experiences or working around conflicts or um, negative turns in your travels? It's, it's, not, all, it's not all negatives or, or bad stories, but often it is uh, when you've formulated your quest, there are certain things you have to do obstacles that are thrown in front of you that you must uh, uh, overcome or or not, as the case may be. Sometimes failure is as good a story as success. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not all negative stories like, I almost died. Uh, It's negative stories like, um, this bureaucrat will not let us go into this particular area that we have decided is... uh, the place where we want to meet the Bambenjale pygmies that are part of our quest. And he doesn't want us to go there because uh, he feels they, oh, reflect badly on the Congo because they aren't educated like he is. Therefore, I've got to sit for three hours and uh, three days coming to his office and convincing him that uh, it is not going, I'm not going to write a story that makes the Congo look bad, which isn't to say that I would not write a story that would make him look bad. Right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, 25 years after you put this less list together, um, and you know, you, you say that it's, these are the less evident rules of travel, but I, from the time I first read it, they felt very, if not evident, very relevant. Um, are there any new rules that have come to you or... 
any key rules that you can leave us with? If you have a lot of experience like I do, you can cut down on your gear. That's uh, lighter gear, I think, is uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, things that I would do. And during the uh, 90s and early 2000s, a lot of the post-Soviet space opened up, places that we could go to that uh, we couldn't go to when the Soviet Union existed. And uh, so having certain... uh, Studying the political situation uh, and who is mad at who and why is going to help you in those situations where uh, you're going into a country where they're, uh, in in those days they weren't used to foreigners coming in um, and they didn't know whether, oh, you were um, scouting their place for some kind of CIA takeover or some kind of Russian takeover. Uh, you had, uh, so knowing the, the politics of the situation and who's mad at who um, is often very helpful in talking to uh, people in border guards who are going to let you through their uh, barricades. I would imagine. Um, do you have trouble? You've been on so many quests. Do you have trouble finding new quests or? or uh... Never. <laughs> Never. There's a, always a quest. There's so many things. I should do that. I should do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's next on your plate, Tim? What's uh, what? What adventures await? I'm happily retired. Oh, no kidding. Yep. All right. Well, congratulations on a uh, on a career f- filled with quests, rooster heads, and um, less and less gear. <laughs> Thanks, Ralph. <laughs> This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Tim Cahill's book, Hold the Enlightenment, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.